You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash tea. Welcome to the conversation. My guest today is Tom Nash, um, who is also known as DJ Hookie. He is a professional DJ and uh, guitarist and music organizer. Um, and uh, he also, he has a very striking and salient um, disability, visible disability, um, which I think is a, an unavoidable topic. Um, and I would advise this is audio only. Um, do go take a look at a photo so you can see what I mean. Um, and um, I guess uh, I think uh, my first question actually is that um, I met you in person a few, about a week ago or so. And you, um, you said that many people think you're an inspirational speaker, but you're not an inspirational speaker. And I was really interested in before we get into um, your story, because I think we do need to give people background who don't know anything about you. And since my audience are mostly not in Australia, here you seem to be well known, but uh, in the UK, I think people don't know who you are. Um, but before we get into that, I'm just intrigued as to why you're, you don't think you're an inspirational speaker, because you have been on TED. So um, to yeah. my mind, you're an inspirational speaker if you've been on TED. <laughs> right, okay, yeah. I mean, well, I, I guess the distinction is between inspiration and and reflection. So I, I unless I'm inspiring people to lose their arms and legs and become a DJ, I don't really get <laughs> that line. I don't know what I would be inspiring people to do. Um, but, yeah, I, I've never really – it's never sat well with me things like inspiration or, or motivational speaking or anything like that because I don't think that I'm necessarily motivational. But I, I am really interested in philosophy, self-reflection and things like that and how we can grow from uh, negative vicissitudes, I guess. Yeah. Let's, um, before we get into this, I know this is kind of a, it must be a somewhat tedious question for you to be asked every time um, about your disability and the origins of it and what happened. And I apologize that this is the second time I've asked you because when I met you in person, I also, one of the first things I asked you was, um, how, how did this happen? So um, I, um, I'll just say that Tom has... Um, prosthetic arms from above above the elbow, right? Actually, um, through the elbow. Through the elbow, yeah. um, which end in um, two hooks, which are extremely, I was going to say surprisingly, but I guess it's not surprising after all this time. You're very good at manipulating. Um, and I didn't actually know when I met you in person. I found that out later that you also have prosthetic lower limbs uh, from the thigh downwards. The, it's actually below the knee. Below the knee. Ah, oh, okay. So yeah. um, you also have prosthetic limbs below the knee, which 
I didn't notice. So I'm obviously not that observant. And you have scar, some scarring in the face and a little bit of damage to the nose and ears. And yeah, I don't like do that. things in halves. Yeah. Yes, as you said, <laughs> symmetry is very, physical symmetry is very yeah, important yeah, to you. Like to, if you're going to lose one arm, lose two, you know, and at the same spot. Yeah, it's a very striking sight. And uh, I mean, at the very first glance, kind of shocking, you know. I was kind of surprised by how quickly one's eyes adjust. Um, and therefore, it just you just look like you. You look quite normal. Um, uh, you look quite normal for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> um, but yeah, at the first instant, I spotted you before you came over to the table. I was like, oh my God, what happened to that poor guy? Um, so... And you didn't think I was going to sit at your table. And no, then I was like, hey, was like, how you doing? Oh, no, here he comes. <laughs> be ready to be confronted with what happened. Actually, it's interesting that you say that um, uh, your eyes adjust because I'd been told by a friend uh, years ago that – and I, I don't, I've only known this guy for maybe a few years now, but he's become a very close friend quite quickly. And he once told me that um, the first day he met me, it was like quite striking because he's like, oh, this guy's got hooks for hands and, you know, scarring on his face. It's kind of like what happened. And then he said after about half an hour or so, he's like, I forgot that you didn't have hands. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting, as you said, how one's eyes adjust and how your psyche adjusts to it such that it just becomes normal. And I think all of my friends, uh, it's, it's, obviously, it's obviously that way for them. And so if we're ever anywhere together where I get weird looks, they're kind of like, what are they looking at? Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, um, I have a tendency to be not very diplomatic. So, um, but I was wondering, actually, sorry, I'm doing things in completely weird order here. Um, we will come That's back. always good because you keep the listener guessing. <laughs> what could be next? <laughs> we will come back to your story, but mm. um, I think that, or your the kind of origin of the disability, that part of your story. Um, but I, I, um, I was actually wondering. You know, um, you are. You seem like a very uh, confident person and very selfish, self assured in a good way. Um, and very good at kind of handling social situations, putting people at ease. And I, I did wonder how much of that have you always been like that, or is that a is that a personality has that side of your personality developed as a result of the fact that you ca- you can't really go unnoticed, you can't blend yeah. into the crowd. I mean, it's it's a very difficult question for me to answer because. I'm sort of forced to cast my mind back more than 20 years to before I had a disability and, you know, one's memory is a little cloudy of that time, I guess. Um, I think I've always been a fairly gregarious person and quite confident, but I definitely think that that skill has been honed by result uh, by result of having a disability because you do have a sense of responsibility to, uh, you know, make sure that everyone is comfortable around you mm-hmm. to an extent. And, you know, for me... I, I like to use humor usually to to break the ice, I guess, wh- wherever I can. And it's, it's, humor is a great skill to develop, I guess, despite that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I have never developed it. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. 
We'll see how we go in this conversation. <laughs> I generally find I can only make people laugh unintentionally. Um, if I tr- if I try okay. it, yeah, okay. which is fine. You yeah, know, I yeah. spread much joy in that way by being the the straight woman to other yeah. people's comedy. <laughs> but if I try to make a joke, it's just absolutely false completely flat <laughs> yeah but what you could do is you could hone the skill of making a really flat joke but people anticipate your jokes always bombing mm. you know what i mean mm. like if that's part of your mm. character then they'll wait for it then they'll anticipate it if they I, know you well enough i don't know you know it seems like when i when i was a dancer um one of my teachers once said if you're not able to for example lift your leg high you can't just say oh my style of dance is not lifting my leg up <laughs> It's just that you can't do it. and Yeah, you can't do it, but, but, but you can definitely say, sell it as that's you, your style. Yes, yes. So I don't know about my style of jokes is they're not funny. I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> Making a virtue well, item Well, let necessity. me tell you something. My, my grandfather, um, for whom I had great respect, my, my father's father, who's dead now, um, used to, I mean, he was quite a humorous guy, but he always had these catchphrases that he would say, and one of them, uh, which I remember quite distinctly, was "We're off like a herd of turtles." So whenever we'd be leaving the house to go somewhere, he would say, "We're off like a herd of turtles." <laughs> and when I was a little kid, I was kind of like, "Oh, that's cute and funny." And then as I got older, it started to annoy me. I'm like, "That's really lame, Grandpa!" Like, stop saying it. And then he just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And over time, it became funny again. So he mm. kind of, he just mm. stuck it out. He, like, mm. he committed to that <laughs> joke to the point where when I was in my early 20s, I, I would be, you know, on on edge, just wait. Like if we're leaving the house, I'm just like, oh, he's going to say it, isn't he? He's going <laughs> to, and then he would say it and there would be this release of tension. <laughs> it would be really funny. So It's like in jazz, you know, when you make a mistake, you repeat it three times to make it. To make it become intentional. Oh, right? see, I've done that with DJing before. Mm. When I was first, when I first started DJing, because I couldn't DJ when I started, I actually used to, if I made a mistake, I would repeat it again to make it look intentional. Like, oh, I accidentally um, pulled the fader down and everything went quiet. I would push it back up again and wait for the next four bars and do the same thing as though it was intentional. <laughs> yeah, it's a good strategy. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I did wonder. Um, uh, well, this is a question you obviously can't answer, but I'm just speculating aloud. I did wonder um, how different it would be if some someone who is very introverted and shy um, had a very visible disability. That must be a uh, very different experience and much harder. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I do know a couple of people who are just, they don't have a disability, actually just um, obese. A couple of people who are very, very fat. And they are also extremely shy. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of a, you know, it's a very difficult for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's so easy to say, hey, just own it. And and so or lean into yeah. it or something like yeah. that. It's it's easy for some, not so easy for others. I would imagine. I think it must be easier for men also because yeah, it could be. Yeah. I mean, when I I used to live in Argentina, and lots of the guys had nicknames. So, mm. um, you know, the guy was um, Mister Big Nose or Fat Rolls or whatever it was. Skeleton. Uh, you know, this thin guy I knew was called the Skeleton. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> Women, none of the women had any of those nicknames. So yeah. there was no way you could have been 
Mers fat rolls, you know. Do you think that that's because of an increased level of expectation on females' appearance? Um, yeah. Or, think- is it, or is it men's ability to trivialise their shortcomings mm. in order to still remain appealing or, or increase their level of value on the sexual battlefield? Yeah. You know, through means of uh, humour. Yeah, I think, you know, for... Um, it definitely seems to be evolutionarily inbuilt that for women, looks are more important. Mm. Um, and therefore, it's more difficult to take it with humor yeah. if your looks aren't what you would like them to be as a woman. Yeah. Um, whereas um, women are a bit less focused on the looks and therefore... Mm. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, and, and, and men kind of, if, even if they sort of subconsciously understand this concept, are able to leverage that. You know, mm, in a way mm. that, which I, I think I probably definitely have. You know? <laughs> Just work on being charming, then you'll then you'll get girls. Yeah, yeah. it's worked so far. So yeah, yeah. you're definitely very charming. Um, as people can tell, I can't even get to my interview because you're so charming. Oh, sorry, just I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you. Upon. No, no, it's all right. Uh, maybe, um, I'll, maybe I'll end up interviewing you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think uh, let's let's uh, start actually by just. Um, telling people who don't know what happened, how did you end up um, a quadruple amputee? So when I was uh, 19, oh, up, up until I was 19, I guess I was a very regular uh, middle of the road um, uh, teenage boy. Uh, I'd grown up in different places around the world, uh, but ended up residing in Australia for the lion's share of my growing up. And I was in first year university, just here at Sydney University, uh, which we're actually down the road from at the time of this recording. Um, and I, I was feeling sick one day when I went to university. I was sitting at the bar with a, a bunch of my friends and I was supposed to go to a few tutorials and ended up feeling so sick that I thought I was just going to take myself home. And the sickness sort of felt like a flu. Mm. Um, but if you've ever had a really bad flu, like a proper flu, not like a cold, it was like the the onset of that, I guess, mm, mm. <clears throat> to the point where I, I didn't actually believe that I could uh, achieve anything from going to class. So I went back home and at the time I was living in a one-bedroom apartment in a neighbouring suburb um, on my own. So I didn't really have people around me. And so I went home and I put myself to bed and I sort of texted my stepsister, uh, who was going to the same university as me, but w- we didn't live together. And I just said, um, t- told her I was feeling sick. And she said, um, she said, oh, you know, do you want me to take you to a doctor? I said, no, 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 I don't need a doctor. Because, you know, like, if, if you're a 19-year-old boy, you know, pretty much everything's going to be fine. You just sleep it off. Um, and then I ended up having such an awful night of what I thought was a, a really bad flu. And we're talking about... Uh, not being able to sleep properly, waking up in the middle of the night in cold sweats, dragging myself to the bathroom. Um, And I remember eventually falling asleep, but it was in this weird sort of dreamlike haze state where I'm not really asleep, but I'm not really awake, that kind of thing. And when I eventually woke up in the morning, it was so bad that I thought, okay, I'm going to see a doctor. So I texted my stepsister and I said, okay, take me to a doctor. But by the time she arrived she looked at me and thought, I'm taking you to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Because at that time, uh, my body had swollen up and I had a purple rash all over my skin. And that was the uh, onset of meningococcal septicemia, which is uh, bacterial meningitis. 
The disease itself isn't that interesting to most listeners unless you have a medical background or, or, or whatever, but effectively it's, it can be a death sentence if it's not attended to immediately. And I was already too late in that process or not being seen to, such that if I was, um, you know, 10 minutes later, I probably would have died. To, if I had presented to hospital 10 minutes later, I probably would have died. Or at least that's what I was told. Um, <clears throat> and so she took me to hospital which was just up the road there. And then I ended up spending the next 18 months in hospital over three or four different hospitals granted. Um, but as a result of the meningococcal, you, you are left with septicemia. Well, it's a, it's a septicemia, which is a blood poisoning. And then that uh, causes gangrene to the limbs. And so if you don't want that to spread and kill the host, you need to start chopping off limbs, which is what they did. Mm-hmm. Um, so they took my legs first, And it was kind of a weird experience because, I mean, I was on a lot of drugs during that period. And so, you know, my memory of exactly how I was feeling is a a little bit hazy and probably not what it ought to have been. But I do remember being quite confused because as a 19 year old boy, you don't have an acute understanding of disability. You don't probably like I didn't know that many people with disabilities. And so I didn't know what would I have to live in a wheelchair? Could I walk again? All these questions, you know, the, the whole situation was cloaked in ambiguity. Um, and then it was only maybe four or five weeks after that, that they had to amputate my arms. And that I remember being a distinctly different set of circumstances because, mm-hmm. you know, losing your arms is, is an order of magnitude you know, more debilitating than losing your legs. I, I knew that on face value. Mm-hmm. So the level of independence uh, sort of being truncated in such a way was one thing. But then also I used to play guitar and uh, losing the ability to have that creative outlet that I loved so much. That was my only, uh, that was the only thing that I really loved in life mm-hmm. at that time, because I think I was, I was too young to have decided on any kind of vocational pursuit And everything else that I was studying was just kind of out of interest and things like that. Uh, So, so that was like a a two pronged, (laughs) that was a double whammy. Uh, And, you know, again, no future blueprint. Do you live with prosthetic arms? You know, inevitably people come up to you with videos of electric hands and they're like, Oh, you know, don't worry. You can be bionic man and (laughs) shit like that, which is not very comforting. Mm -hmm. Um, in that particular scenario. Uh, but yeah, so I spent 18 months in hospital and the, the latter, uh, year of that, I guess the, the end part was, um, in a rehabilitation hospital. And that's where you learn to use prosthetics and walk and you get prosthetic arms and learn how to pick up glasses and pens. And, um, and then since then, uh, I guess it's been a really wild ride. That was 20 years ago. So that was in, 2001 that I got that I got sick and I got out of hospital at the end of 2002 uh I went back to studying but I didn't go back to study uh, psychology which I was doing I went back to study sound engineering and music business management and I think that was probably that that decision was probably made because I felt there was a, you know, life's too short kind of element and I don't want to get caught doing something I don't really love and then everything just gets taken away from you. Mm. It's a really fast lesson um, that that can happen to anyone at any age. And so I did want to do something in music, but I didn't want to be a starving artist as well. 
because I'm not that kind of person. So I thought, well, I'll study something that's sort of vaguely scientific in the musical field and also a bit of business as well so I can work out a way to actually keep myself alive. Um, and then at the same time, in conjunction with that, I also uh, worked out a way to play the guitar with my hooks. And that went through, that was like an iterative process of really shit engineering. You because play I, it on your lap, right? Like yeah, a kind of right. tableau or something. Like like a slide guitar. Mm. Yeah. And so, because I, I had all these um, designs for playing guitar with hooks, which were, you know, they varied from like a clamp that would go over a fretboard with buttons that I would press to do different chords and things like that. None of them were really that practical. And then when I realized I could just retune the guitar to be open tuned and then and then hold a slide, but I'd need to be able to design it in such a way that I could put my hooks through either side and then have a pick holder on the other side. And I consulted with a friend of a friend who was an engineer for music and uh, he built them for me. Mm. And, you know, as soon as he made them and I went into his workshop, I could immediately play it because I already had the music knowledge, you know, to back me up and I, all I needed was to overcome the physicality of it. And that was kind of the first thing that, that um, catapulted my career into music, even though, you know, I started a band that was with a friend of mine that was pretty shit <laughs> and we've recorded some music and toured around. Um, but but as a result of that, I, I had some contacts in nightclubs because I'd been booking a lot of our gigs and I started working in, uh, doing work experience, sorry, in nightclubs. And then I started noticing that, um, people that were DJs were, um, you know, the way that they got gigs was to email and send their kind of mixtapes and resumes and, you know, all this. It was a really bad way of doing it. And I realized that if you ever wanted to create, you know, the career of a DJ, like how, how would you do that that's not this way? And my friend Chris and I were like, well, we'll, we'll start a nightclub. Mm-hmm. Or we'll just, you know, like not, not an actual um, bricks and mortar or buy a thing, but... Just a just a brand that exists within a club because ownership is kind of tenuous when you think about it. You know, whoever's name's on the outside of the door kind of owns the place. And so we thought, oh, we'll start this club night. And we did it. And we put ourselves on as the DJs. And we and we tried to like sort of change the focus from booking really big acts that would pull people um, to getting people that went there to focus on the actual vibe of the party and the personalities of the people there and the branding and the drinks and who was meeting you at the door. And and then we would slide ourselves in like this musical Trojan horse kind of thing and just create that uh, created ourselves uh, DJs and names as DJs. And we didn't know how to, well, I didn't know how to play certainly when I started and but that being thrown in the deep end uh, meant that I, I learned really swiftly mm. and quicker than mm. I would have if I had equipment at home that I was practicing on. Mm. And that yeah. was going to be the next 15 years of my life was being a DJ. Well, up until now, I still do it. So I was quite, um, um, so I'm, I'm quite struck by how um, physically expressive you are. Oh, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> oh, you mean this? <laughs> yeah. For someone who doesn't have hands, you gesticulate yeah. like an Italian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this, is, this is my so impression of an Italian your, person yes. with no hands. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like your arms at the stumps are moving a lot. And you also, you just move around a lot in general. Mm. And I watched a video of you DJing also, and you're kind of dance grooving at yep. the DJ um, pulpit. So I'm, I'm actually quite, I'm struck by... Um, how sort of both 
kind of physically active you are and also how much energy you seem to have. Mm. And I'm here at your house. Yes. Um, thank you so Welcome, much for inviting <laughs> me. It didn't occur to me until I was almost at the door and I suddenly thought, huh, it's actually quite interesting to see his house because maybe he has a lot of accommodation, uh, you know, uh, special equipment and accommodations. Mm. Um, and maybe you're doing some private spots that I haven't seen, but I don't really know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, it's, it's just a completely normal house. You do have a carer, but your kind of level of being able to deal with things is very high. And also, I, you know, I have a, a close friend who has cerebral palsy. He gets very tired easily because. Mm. Um, just doing ordinary physical things requires a lot more energy and has to be done in a more inefficient way. Um, and that must be to some extent true for you as well. Um, and um, nevertheless, you seem to be very energetic and you are able to DJ clubs, which is, involves more energy than I have, certainly. <laughs> well, it, it, it involves uh, more social energy than you would... Mm anticipate mm. i think because the the physicality of djing you know i would say slightly tongue-in-cheek but also quite seriously is pretty easy um but yeah the social energy and the being out and talking to people and yelling over loud music is is draining socially draining but i think that that could be said of anyone i don't think <clears throat> i don't think it's necessarily harder for me with a disability, mm-hmm. there, there have been places that I have DJed that have been a challenge. Um, you know, for instance, I remember, I'll give you an example, but I, I remember very early in my career, I played this club in Brisbane and it's called GPO. I think it still exists. But back then, and this would have been about 15 years ago now, uh, in the downstairs area, they had this DJ booth that was in the corner of the room, but it was kind of raised. And there was no visually obvious entrance to this DJ booth, like set of stairs up the side or anything mm-hmm. like that. And we asked the promoter, like, oh, how do we get up there? And he said, oh, yeah, follow follow me. And he took us back to the green room. And then down near the floor on the wall, there was a tiny little trap door in the wall. <gasps> and as soon as he opened the trap door, there was an immediate ramp that went up 45 degrees. And he's like, it's a crawl space. So you have to crawl wow. <laughs> up into the DJ booth. Oh, my God. And I was like, ah, oh, shit. I'm like, all right, well, like, I mean, this is going to be rough. And I had, luckily I was with you know, Chris and his brother and someone else. And and so I was like, look, I'm going to get onto the floor and then I'm going to get into this crawl space and, like, push myself up with my legs. I'm going to need someone on the other side to, like, hoik me up into this <laughs> DJ booth. God forbid I have to go to the bathroom during my set or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Nightmare. That was my first thought. Yeah, yeah. But there's all sorts of things like that. I mean, a lot of the time, you know, the entertainment industry strictly, you know, from the artist side is rarely thought about, you know, through the lens of disability. Like, Mm. um, I don't, I'm not even sure that there's regulations that, you know, I I get it. Like, they probably don't have too many disabled performers. (laughs) But I've played festivals before where it's even, you know, getting up onto the stage, there's no steps. You just have to sort of jump up this huge thing. And I've had to say to the promoter, like, hey, can you get, like, a plank or something that mm. I can step up onto? And um, so that's sort of an interesting aspect to it, yeah, I guess. Yeah. I think, uh, so um, the, the, the adjustments you've made to be able to play guitar or made to the instrument 
um, bring up something which seems to be a theme for you in your interviews, and um, I also wanted to ask about it, which is um, you have this idea, which it, I had never thought of before, but um, now I f I'm, I'm citing you all the time, which is that disability um, promotes innovation, prompts innovation. Mm. Um, could you say more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So... Um yeah, one of the things I guess that really interests, interested me over the past few years is because I like to, to reflect a lot on what kind of advantages I've, I've come across while having a disability. And I think uh, one of them, at least, is the ability to uh, think differently when approaching problems. And I think a lot of people could benefit from this that don't have disabilities. And particularly in the design field, uh, I noticed a trend of things where... Have you ever heard of a thing called the curb cut effect? No. The curb cut effect is... Uh, well, you know cutouts in curbs. So when you when there's a curb on the side of the road and mm -hmm. then, then there's a sort of cutout part where it sort of becomes flush against the street oh, right. where you're crossing the road. Right. So that was designed for people in wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. But then they also discovered that um, parents with prams and strollers found it mm. advantageous kids using skateboards or mm. roller skates and stuff like that. <clears throat> and so I, I, I have a huge interest in things that are designed for use by one specific person that then get adopted widely. And there's so many different examples of this. Uh, one being, I think, um, I think it was uh, Rory Sutherland who made the example of BT back in the 80s came out with this phone, you know, back when we had phones in our house mm -hmm. <laughs> that had really big buttons uh, for elderly people who couldn't see well or, or people with um, reduced mobility or whatever. And it ended up becoming their best-selling phone. Even though they just they designed it for a very small part of the population, they soon discovered that everyone wanted this. Mm. And, you know, you see it in places like so uh, circular doorknobs versus lever handles, Right. And I, I always say that I've been stuck in way too many nightclub bathrooms, cubicles <laughs> with circular door handles to know that the lever <laughs> style is definitely better. Um, but even in Vancouver, they, they actually outlawed circular doorknobs in all new builds. I think this was e even mm -hmm. as late as 2013. Uh, and it's designed for people who uh, maybe kids exiting a burning building or people with uh, reduced motor skills or whatever it is. But then it also becomes advantageous for able-bodied people to open with their elbow if they're holding a tray of lattes. Yeah, or if you don't want to touch the disgusting door. Or if, yeah, that's exactly yeah. right, yeah. Which which is true of, um, you know, far be it for me to offer a hand-washing experience, but, you know, if you're, <laughs> if you're washing your hands in the bathroom, you want to turn it off with your elbow, like a sort of lever-style tap would actually be massively advantageous. And I think that the lesson from this is that, you know, when people design systems or um, products or experiences or environments, um, when they design for the average, they end up designing for no one, mm. you know, because mm. the average person doesn't really exist. They're just an amalgam. Um, but when you design for someone specifically, you're not always going to find something that everyone wants, but you could accidentally stumble upon something that everyone wants and nobody is looking in those places. Right. Yeah. Right. Because people do, do appreciate ease. Basically, so Absolutely, if you're yeah. innovation, I mean, I some innovations it seems to me are um, they're only easier if you have a specific disability. For Precisely. example, it's it's easier to read a book than to it's 
it's quicker and easier in most situations to read a book than to listen to an audiobook. But of course, an audiobook has uses when you're driving or doing something else. Um, but, you know, something like Siri, everybody finds it useful, even though it's obviously, if you have restricted motor skills, it's probably easier to use Siri. Yeah. Um, but it's easier for everybody to use Siri, and so it's caught on. The you know? amount of my friends that use the accessibility features in an iPhone, you know, that's like the the um, technological version of parking in the disabled parking spot, right? Mm, mm. <laughs> Basically. But, I mean, it's it's there designed for people with, you know, hearing impairments or visual impairments, but widely used. But even things like, you know, text-to-speech and speech-to-text were both things developed for people with disabilities. Uh, closed captions, obviously, um, designed for deaf people. But I can't tell you how many people I see sitting in really no- uh, noisy bars watching a YouTube video with closed captions on, mm. you know? Mm. Well, I, I use closed captions all the time because mm. I can't understand people's accents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. You do enough traveling that you get a free pass <laughs> yeah. with that one, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I watch things with subtitles on more than, more than not. Yeah. I um, actually think, and, and I do as well, even when I can hear what's being said, because I think that my comprehension is higher mm. when I have mm. them on. It's not that I, I mean, I sort of shy away from subtitles in a sense in many instances because I do want to get what the cinematographer or the filmmaker is actually trying to um, deploy visually. And I think there's a lot of communication that's non-verbal that you get in actors' performances and things Mm. like that. But I do find that my comprehension of a TV show or a movie is better when I have the text there to be able to oscillate between that and what's on the screen. Right, yeah. right. Um, have, you, have you developed some compensatory physical skills as well? Um, I mean, for example, are you, are you fast at typing with your two hooks? I'm, I'm as fast as, if not faster than most two-finger typists, mm-hmm. which is not that fast. Mm-hmm. Um, I only recently, uh, maybe I'd say in the past year or two, have started using speech to text, uh, mainly because the technology's gotten better to the point where I can send an email just by speaking it, but then go back and edit it. Mm-hmm. And an email that would take me 20 minutes to write now takes two. And with chat GPT, that's going to become much easier. I guess uh, so, you can, yeah. You can just tell chat GPT to improve it and it will... Mm. Oh, um, yeah, give them the email. And yeah, say, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's made... So I um, I have done some work as a transcriber, and it used to be incredibly... It's incredibly boring and um, um, an annoying work because the transcription software, uh, Otter and the other old transcription softwares, were just not very good. Right. And then you have to do so much correcting. Mm. It's almost as if you were typing it from scratch to begin with. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm watching with some fascination as you do your um, e-cigarette um, <laughs> because it's just, it's very interesting to watch you doing dexterous things with the yeah. hooks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's kind of fun to see. It's fun to see, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you are, ver- you are very, um, you are very at ease w- with, uh, um, with the hooks, I can see. Mm. Um, well, I've had enough practice, I guess. Yeah. You know what's interesting, though? I am better at using hooks than a person that only has one hook, Mm. even if they've Mm. had it for longer. 
uh, because the temptation is to use your good hand. If you've right. only lost one hand, you use your good hand for almost everything and the the prosthetic is sort of like the rhythm guitarist, mm. you know? Mm. Um, and But for me, I don't have that option and so I have to do everything with hooks. Mm. So I get quite proficient. But I also break them a lot. And you are a rhythm guitarist. Yeah, so that's right. <laughs> it seems yeah. appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't imbue irony into this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there are, I, I mean, I know there are some electric hands and things, and you're not a big fan, as I heard from other sources, mm. um, because they have to be charged and things like that. There's so many reasons I don't like them, yeah. And un- they're unwieldy. Um, and, they're not, and they don't look very cool. Mm, like these look mm, pretty cool. They do look cool. <laughs> That's a surprisingly sort of simple contraption. So you've got a band going around the back, which I could actually feel when I hug you. I can yeah. feel there's yeah, a the strap, yeah, strap yeah. there. I thought you were wearing some kind of um, brace, uh, you know, braces holding your trousers up or something. But yeah. now I know that it's connected. Yes, it's all one unit. So mm. both of the, the, the hooks themselves are actually two parts. And they're held together by rubber bands. So the more rubber bands you put on, the tighter they become. And that's a bit of a balancing act because you don't want them so tight that they're going to smash a wine glass. Mm, mm. But you also don't want them too loose such that you would lose your grip on something. Mm. And then one of those hooks is connected to a cable and that runs around my back to provide resistance. Right. So when I push my arm forward, it pulls on the cord Mm. and separates the hooks. So its default position is closed. Right. Which is good for, you know, when I'm holding a cup, I don't have to put pressure pressure. on. Yeah, I just Mm. kind of leave it. Um, But the great thing about them is that they're lightweight. I think that's their their main advantage. Um, And so they're easily manipulated. Um, They're also easily fixed because Mm. they're all body powered. Mm. If I break a cable, which I do frequently, um, I just have to get a screwdriver, replace it, done. Yeah. And so when I travel... I just travel with a, a coil of uh, several different cables that I can interchange whenever I break something. Now, if I had a prosthetic, uh, uh, an electric prosthetic and it broke, that would be like me on a Zoom call to some prosthetist in Germany, you know, looking like, you know, don't cut the red wire, like kind of shit, you know, like that was, <laughs> I don't like that. And I don't need another thing in my life that needs charging. I already have a phone and an iPad and a fucking laptop. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I don't like the idea of the battery running out on you when you're out for drinks with something with someone. (laughs) And that's, you know, and then they, they look stupid and they're heavy. Mm. Like also, Mm. why do they look like hands? I don't understand. Like who are you trying to fool? Mm. I mean, I imagine at some point they will have hands that really look like... Well, I think perhaps before that they'll be able to just grow back your arm or something. That's what I'm looking forward to. Mm. And I have a friend who um, is quite interested in all this sort of stuff. He's a scientist. And he um, he was telling me that if they were to ever be able to grow human tissue and then skin and ligaments and all that sort of stuff proficiently from, let's say, your stem cells, that they might not do it with bone because bone is quite difficult mm. but what they might do is they might recreate your bone out of titanium uh, which would be arguably stronger and then uh, create the ligaments around that and then mm. build the tissue and then build the skin on top mm. which would be fascinating mm. so it would look like you had your own hand or your own arm and yet, and yet your bone would be titanium 
I That'd be cool. Yeah. I can't imagine a time at which people would voluntarily have their arms moved because the, the prosthetic arm ah, would be better. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you could keep the, if you still had the same nerve sensation, you could actually kind of have a better Actually, better that, that, that brings me to something which I could ask you, which I, mm. I think your response would be interesting. There is, um, oh God, now I forget what the, the, there's a term for it and it's people who, um, it's like a body dysmorphia thing where they feel as though they're living in the wrong body, but that body is disabled. And so they might have a limb that mm. feels uh, completely alien to them, so they want to have it removed. Right. Yeah. Have you heard about that? Yeah. It actually features in one of J.K. Rowling's um, novels. Does it really? Uh, I think it's in Lethal White, which is probably my least favorite of her of her novels. Um, features in a in a minor way in Lethal White. It's sort of a mm. a red herring. Actually, I shouldn't have said that because it's just given away. It's been a bit of a spoiler. <laughs> yeah. Um, but don't read Lethal White anyway. It's not not very good. Troubled right. Blood is excellent, but um, hmm, yeah, that uh, I mean, I feel. Um, I mean, I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, so I'm going to kind of, I'm going to sort of shift to a slightly related topic. I think somewhat mm. related, which is that I. Um, I encounter um, online, at least on Twitter, and they probably do exist in real life too, a lot of people who seem confused between um, we should, um, a person's human dignity is not dependent, obviously, on their physical ability, and therefore disabled people should be have equal respect, have, um, uh, have as much, we should... Uh, enable them to flourish as much as possible in every sense um, with the idea that the disability itself is good. So I hear a lot of people saying things like screening for um, uh, spina bifida is is eugenics. Um, Because to suggest that you might have an abortion rather than have a child with spine bifida to suggest that people who have that condition shouldn't shouldn't be alive or their lives have no value. Mm. I think it is a some it's a somewhat complex question, um, especially in borderline cases like Down syndrome, where mm. um, the children themselves seem to be very happy, very happy and cheerful, um, and uh, you know the reasons for deciding not to have a Down syndrome child are largely to do with the strain it will place on the adults, the, mm. the parents. Um, but I wonder how you how you feel about that kind of yeah, whole I mean, question. That's not, I mean, I don't, I don't think that screening for spina bifida is, uh, <laughs> is an exercise in eugenics at all. Um, but I was thinking about it recently, uh, well, not this specifically, but I was reading up about the CRISPR twins. Mm. Have you? Do you know much about no, them? No. And, nor did I until quite recently. Mm. Um, and I still don't know a hell of a lot about them, but I, I was quite interested in the ethical questions that it brought up about, um, you know, for, for lack of a more specific term, designer babies, right? Mm. So the, the ability to genetically modify parts of a child before you have one. You know, such that it might be resilient to things like HIV or or whatever it is. And as far as I can tell in my limited understanding, it's just an ex- like a better way of doing vaccination for things. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like we already try to protect human beings mm-hmm. against 
uh, things like, you know, whether it be meningococcal now has a vaccine, you know mm. what I mean? Mm. And um, it, that would be like me saying don't get vaccinated against meningococcal because if you become a quad amputee then you're always meant to be and you're great, like, mm. which yeah. I think is a bit silly. Yeah, it does seem like there's a difference between this is what happened to me and I'm using it to... Um, I'm happy despite it, or I'm using using it actually as inspiration because this is the place I start from, yeah, yeah. and everyone should start from this place. Yeah, absolutely. Those yeah. are two completely different things, and also one's preventative <clears throat> as well. <clears throat> yeah. So you're not, you know, you're saying, you know, uh, theoretical child that might be born, <laughs> you know, three years from now, um, we can prevent X, Y, Z from happening to them. I, I, if I could genetically modify kids that I have, I would definitely do it. Mm-hmm. I would do it to the nth degree. Yeah. Why wouldn't you give people the the kind of best starting chance? Yeah. Um. Oh, here's an interesting point, though. If uh, if genetically modifying children becomes a ubiquitous practice, then does that level the playing field completely across all human beings? Uh, therefore, they wouldn't necessarily have an advantage. They would all not have the same disadvantage. That's interesting. I find it Im- impossible to imagine that we would. I guess I'm. I. I don't know. I find kind of impossible to imagine that we'd be able to eliminate all hereditary differences. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, um, hmm. I. I. I like to think that we could maybe raise the kind of raise the floor. Yeah. Um, so we could improve humanity, in general, yes. as a whole. Um, and we're already kind of doing that. Like we're not in the West, for example, exposing our kids to lead as they're growing up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of disability activism and um, fat activism also, which is very kind of closely related, mm. and also activism in the deaf community, which seems to be um, it takes the idea of making a virtue out of a necessity too far. Yeah. It's like, it's a virtue out of a necessity. It's not full yeah. stop of virtue. And, and there has to be, I think, a distinction between that virtue and it. Like, it, it's making the best of what you have is one thing, as you mm-hmm. say, but mm-hmm. trying to convince yourself that it is something it's not is something else entirely, I think. I was having an interesting conversation with um, a friend of mine about uh, cochlear implants. And he told me that Cochlear implants, by law, are restricted to the range of human hearing, Mm. which is 20 hertz, maybe 20,000 hertz, that that kind of range. Interesting. Yeah, but he said that it doesn't necessarily mean that that's where the technology ends. Mm. So they could, in theory, Mm. give people superhuman hearing. Right. And I'd be all for that. <laughs> That'd be great. I think that would be a curse. <laughs> Do you really? Yeah. You wouldn't be able to sleep. Yeah, maybe. Everything actually, would be so loud. That's true. Well, I'm not sure if it's an amplitude thing or if it's just a frequency spectrum right. thing. So it could be, um, you know, you might hear dog whistles at the park mm. if you were mm. there or something like that. Or, mm. I don't know what it would be. Yeah, I think having, yes, I think even that, hearing dog whistles, um well, you know, there are some people who hear dog whistles all the time without any yeah, superwoman <laughs> human hearing. Yeah. Ah, fascist. I hear the dog whistles. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that would be a little bit of a mixed bag, the superhuman mm. hearing. 
But, you know, we don't stop people from developing things um, quote-unquote naturally, and there is a, always a question of uh, anything humans do is natural to us. Mm. So um, we... Yeah, I mean, I often think about uh, chess players are basically cyborgs nowadays. Mm. The reason Magnus Carlsen is a much better chess player um, now um, than Garry Kasparov was in his day uh, is because Magnus Carlsen has the benefit of learning by practicing with computers and analyzing things using computers, which Kasparov didn't. There's actually a big kind of debate about which of them is the GOAT. Yeah, um, right. Because <laughs> Kasparov was world champion for longer. Um, he didn't objectively played not as well, but also without aid, without computer aid. So um, we're all kind of using using technology um, to better ourselves. I yeah. mean, I'm wearing gla- I'm wearing very focal glasses, exactly, um, and yeah. without which I would have a mild disability. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's important, I think, to also note that the technology that, you know, is part of us isn't just glasses and prosthetics and things like that, but it's also our phones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Like it's it's an extension of us in a way. It's an extension of our abilities. And something like a smartphone, you know, connects us to the collective knowledge of the entire world. Which is heavily underutilized, in my opinion. <laughs> um, I think I was uh, did was I talking to you about uh, when we first met about how Vodafone used to have that service where you would be able to call oh, them up. Yes, you were. Yes, uh, yeah. So it was before smartphones <laughs> existed, and if you were in an argument in a pub with someone, you could call up Vodafone and say, oh, "Who was the 60th president?" You know, whatever you know, want to ask her, um, and they would Google it for you and give it back to you, and that was a mm-hmm. service they provided. And it was my theory that now that uh, we have this compendium of knowledge in our pockets necessarily due to a scarcity effect, we don't even Google things. Mm. Like, I mean, it's mm. maybe people of our generations are, are more likely to do so, but I, I constantly watch uh, even as old as millennials or some Gen Z people will uh, be in an argument about something and the, the answer to this question is in their pocket but they don't reach for it. But, you know, there is a merit to doing things the hard way. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, that's why, for example, um, in, a, in an actual chess tournament, you're not using the computer. Mm. Um, although you're playing worse than you could if you use the computer. That's also why Usain Bolt doesn't just get in a car. Mm. You know, then he would obviously beat them all. Yeah. Um, I could just drive a car yeah, that's and a I'd good be point. faster or get in a motorbike. But... No, it's like, what can you do unaided? But do you think that that's what they're thinking? No, I don't. (laughs) No, I definitely don't. You're being far too charitable. Um, Do you think that maybe there's something to do as well with the fact that I think people intrinsically know that when they Google information, they can get whatever answer they want. Like if they want confirmation bias, they can absolutely find that in the mm. way that they craft mm. the question. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, very yeah. easy to, you know, like a very tried example, but, you know, like if two people are arguing about climate change or something like that, yes. you know, any yes. one of them could sort of Google, you know, is climate change bullshit and come up with a bunch <laughs> yeah. of, you know, data that will confirm their beliefs. And so they, 
almost in many circumstances need to resort to the art of, you know, argument mm-hmm. or... I want to ask you, I'm trying to think how to frame this, um, and I'm not asking about your current girlfriend, that would be too personal, but I did want to know how your disability has affected your kind of romantic and intimate relationships. Um, is there kind of danger in, um, uh, uh, you know, the person who has a... Have you encountered women who have a kind of savior complex who think, I want to be with him in order to help him, you know, and I, yeah, I understand the care question. for him? Or, um, um, it's really hard to or say. I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I think that. How is it a factor, basically? Or is it a fact? Has it been a factor? I think that, I mean, you know, like it's it's obviously a factor, but I don't think that it's been a negative factor. Mm. I think. Uh, to an extent, people are attracted to a sense of mystery, and whenever they people meet me, there is a sense of mystery implicit. Mm, yes, um, without having to even sort of imbue the situation with a mystery that might not be there. So, uh, I think in in the initial stages, it would that would be how it would affect it. Um, it's it's often difficult for me with partners because. Um, there are certain things that I just I am not doing, you know, with, yeah, yeah. A, with a disability. Some of it's because I have a disability. Some of it just, is just because I'm an asshole, right? Like mm. I won't go to the beach because mm. I hate sand. It's not because mm. I have a disability. <laughs> I just fucking hate the beach. So, like, if you're the kind of girl that you know likes to have picnics, and you know, I'm not doing it. Um, so, I think I have a pretty specific set of prerequisites for a partner. And, yeah, some of those are disabled-related, some of them aren't. And, you know, I need help uh, in the shower, let's say, in the morning. Mm. Everything else I'm I'm fine with. But because I have to take my prosthetics off mm. and I can't get them wet, I need help with the shower. So that that is something that I kind of have to push on to a partner when I travel. Mm. So, right. if we, you know, so if we go to Europe for, um, you know, a few weeks or something like that, I'm not getting carers over there that help me with that. A partner will help me with that. Right. I've never had a person mm. ever come even close to complaining about they're more than happy to and, and love doing it. Um, but, the, you know, there's a there's a loss of independence there in a very slight way that creates uh, a slight inequity in relationships, I think. Mm. I've always suspected that. And I've actually brought up with a few partners before and they compl- emphatically deny it. They're like, no, 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 don't be ridiculous. And they might absolutely be thinking that, but I think there's an underpinning of it to a certain extent. You know, mm. like, uh, I am reliant upon them for a couple of things, you know. Do you ever travel on your own? I have traveled on my own in the past, but only for short trips, like because, a day or something like that. Because you get so smelly. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I, I won't go a day without showering. So it might be like if I've got like a radio thing in Melbourne, I could go down and do it and then come back. And You know, but and I, I've had other situations where I've actually gotten a local carer that I've gotten from somewhere, mm-hmm. wherever it is, to come in. So I've done that. But typically not, yeah. Is the state providing the carer? Um, yeah. money for the carer. Yeah, that's right. So we have a system here called the NDIS, which I'm sure you're somewhat aware of or maybe uh, not. No, no. no. Okay. Uh, it was brought into effect, I'd have to say what about... What does it stand for? Sorry. National Disability Insurance Scheme. Uh, it's... Um, it de- Depending on who you are, it sometimes can look like a repackaging of the old services, but for some people it's massively beneficial. So... Mm. 
even preceding the NDIS, I was still provided with carers and I was still provided with prosthetics. Mm. Um, with the NDIS, I think, I think I have the ability to get fancier prosthetics, although I haven't done that yet. Um, and the carer thing is the same. Mm. So it's pretty much the same for me. The state's always looked after that kind of stuff, including all of the hospital bills that I would have had for being in hospital for 18 months. I think there was um, a figure being thrown around that if I was on the private health system, it would have cost over a million dollars for me to be mm. Uh, mm. in hospital for 18 months. Yeah. The gap that you pay, you know, yeah. like crazy. Stunishing. Yeah. Um, so Australia is fantastic for that yeah, kind of stuff. Absolutely yeah, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I think um, I, I, we haven't really talked much about, um, we haven't talked very much about psychology. And um, I was wondering um, this kind of um, more than resilience, as you rightly say, it's like an anti-fragility that you allow the kind of, the misfortunes to make you make you stronger, um, uh, rather than just sort of standing there being buffeted and withstanding. Um, I think most people are familiar with that concept now from um, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's book, um, talking of assholes, <laughs> very intelligent asshole, Mr. <laughs> Taleb. Um, I I wonder. Um, I was wondering how long it kind of took you to develop that attitude whether um if you remember because um i know you were on a lot of drugs and you were also a teen so mm. your brain hadn't fully developed at that time but do you remember the kind of process um you in one of the interviews that i listened to uh you said that there was a point when you were in the hospital and um the nurse told you that they would there were two options. They could amputate your arms um, or they could leave your arms and you would die. So um, you, couldn't, you couldn't legally ask them for euthanasia, but you could refuse the treatment and choose death. And um, you didn't immediately choose life. You had a moment of thinking. You had at least a, a moment of thinking about it. And... Um, yeah, I, I um, has there been a process of kind of um, changing your mentality, and how has that how has that worked? Well, I'll start by addressing the arm um, situation when um, the doctor had said if you <coughs> um, you can have them amputated, that's what we're recommending. You will live with prosthetics, or um, you can keep them, but you'll die. You know, upon reflection, I think that the period that I took to think on that was less about me actually oscillating between, yes, I will, no, I won't, and more about savoring the moment of first having control over something. Mm. Because up until that, uh, you know, one of the things that I had lost was control over the situation. Everything was happening to me mm. and not mm. at my behest. And so it was the first time that I, I really felt like I had a choice. And I think I just wanted to sit in that for a while, if I'm being honest. Yeah. I don't think that I ever would have considered keeping them if it was certain that I was going to die. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, in answer to your broader question about what the process 
would have been of me coming out the other end and and being able to develop that skill of turning negatives into positives very much an iterative process and i think that i started learning the groundwork or the or the baseline lessons of those things very early on when i you know learned to walk again and learn to walk up steps and realize that i had to do everything differently and allowing that to change my mindset and uh, problem solve in different ways all of those were i guess laying the groundwork for what i would then later identify as you know being anti-fragile in the sense that you're you're able to use that technique or that skill to turn negative vicissitudes into positives um and so i wasn't aware that that's what i was doing then but looking back on it and all of the things that i did do uh, and how it's changed me as a person i realized that that's it's post-traumatic growth it's not post-traumatic stress mm. you know mm. um and so, yeah, a lot of it in the more recent years, I guess, has been reflecting on it and kind of just crystallizing that as an idea. And I always sort of knew what it was. Uh, and it wasn't until I, I read um, a bit of that book and watched a few of Taleb's talks about that. I'm like, that what he's talking about is what I'm trying to do in, a, in the psychological realm, um, you know, for, for my life. Not, I mean, he talks a lot about economics and systems and black swans and things like that. Um, uh, but I've you just stolen that uh, and applied it to, you know, how can we make advantage from adversity, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if this way of looking at it even makes sense to you, but um, some people regard who have a very salient um, disability or some other salient thing about their appearance, which are clearly behind which there is clearly a story, let's say, Um Feel, uh, say things like, people don't see me, they see the X, the wooden leg, or whatever it might be, the hooks. Um, and they feel resentful of that because they feel that that is a kind of barrier um, and that, in a sense, it, it's like competing. Um, it's like, don't share the stage with children or animals. It's like competing for attention with a with a disability. Do you ever feel that way or is that a way of looking at it that doesn't make sense to you? Yeah, I, I used to feel that way. Mm. Um, I, I used to feel uh, that it was in some way shrouding people from from seeing what I, I had to offer, I mm. guess. Mm. And so, I mean, an example of that would have been, and it still is today, you know what I mean, but I'm just more comfortable with it now is uh, the DJing thing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a DJ that has hooks for hands. That's the most interesting thing about my DJs. I'm yeah. not particularly <laughs> good at DJing, right? I mean, I'm fine, but um, when people see me, they're kind of like, oh, there's a guy with no hands DJing. Isn't that crazy? And I remember when I started DJing, it was kind of fine because I didn't really know what I was doing, but then I was becoming better and better every week, and then I started to get really proficient at it. Um, but there was no increase in respect necessarily from people mm. they were just like oh yeah you're still just djing with hands and i'm <laughs> like it, it sort of disincentivizes you to get better at other things if you look at it like that mm-hmm. um yeah there's a low a soft bigotry of low expectations, low expectations <laughs> that's exactly right yeah um and you know i i get it now because you know you look at it through other people's eyes and that's that's the most interesting thing about you but to now I look at it in a way of like, well, except that that's how people are going to view you. Um, 
But use it as a kind of bait to get them to listen to you talk about more interesting shit. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. I, I do feel that you talked about responsibility um, early in the conversation, and I do kind of feel as though um, if you didn't talk about your disability, it would be there would be something rather perverse about that because it clearly is a very large part of what you can offer people. Oh yeah, is um, um, and I do think it's kind of motivational, actually, <laughs> in a sense. <laughs> even though you're skating you're, on thin ice, okay. <laughs> even though you're kind of, as I could already tell when I met you, you're kind of a loose sort yeah. of type. You're a smoking, drinking, hard-living type. Um, so uh, you're not in that sense a role model. You're not like getting up at five and, and well, you're obviously not doing, yeah, not, I'm, not I'm doing the, weights. I'm but. the fucking anti-Tony Robbins. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so it's really, it's kind of weird to say that. Um, I'm extremely skeptical of these inspirational types. Yeah, so frankly. Yeah. But also, you know, what you offer the world is um, your your cheerfulness and anti-fragility and kind of ingenuity in the face of some very, very obvious challenges and, and very obvious uh, difficulties um, or things that would be kind of feel, seem like they would be in super cool difficulties until one sees you um, superating them, <laughs> whatever the word is, surmounting them. That's the word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one sees you superating. That yeah. doesn't sound good. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like I'm going to film them on an old camera or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, that that is clearly the kind of that is one of the most obvious things that you have to offer, and that's yeah. very. Um, you know, it's a it's kind of nice to be around. Whereas mm. I thought when you were approaching the table, I thought you might be uncomfortable to be around. Like you might be shy about this. You might not want it to be mentioned, but it's impossible not to notice, yeah, etc. Yeah. You might be one of these people who's like, stop staring at me, mm. you know. But people are obviously, one's eye is drawn to something unusual. Yeah. Um, so it's natural. Staring is natural. Noticing is natural. Yeah. And having kind of strong initial response feelings is natural. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'm, I'm hyper aware of that, as mm. you might imagine. And I do uh, understand the value in that for people to the point where it used to annoy me to hear people say, uh, which I used to get a lot, which is a trope, was, oh, I, I never could have gone through what mm. you did mm. and been so positive mm. on the other side. And it, the reason it annoyed me was because if you're going to take anything from just seeing me on site, it would be the opposite to right. that. It would be that, you know, because if I were to think of myself back when I was 19 and I was told that all of this stuff was going to happen to me, I probably would have thought the same thing. Mm. But if there's a possibility that people can go through some horrible adversity and still come out the other side and be positive, it somewhat gives hope. You know, that, that there is a possibility that people can get through things like that and not have their world cave in on them. You right, know what I mean? Right, right. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're that person, mm. but you don't know whether you are mm. until you go through it. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, I, um, I often use this analogy, but if people are um, path dependent. It's like a bar of chocolate. Yeah. You know, if you melt the chocolate and re-solidify it, it's not going to be the same as it was yeah. before. Um, 
So oh, that's a good example of path dependence. So, yes. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's really impossible to tell what the what the outcomes will be. Um, it's impossible to predict the future and to say I would never be able to do that. That's a kind of form of fortune telling that mm. is just yeah. Um, uh, not possible, but I think it's just a way of saying it's very admirable the way that you have. It is, yeah. It. It's it's always well intentioned, mm-hmm. but I never want intentions to get in the way of like truth. proper messages mm-hmm. and truth. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, I, I yeah I completely concede and understand that to an extent, uh, and and oh, very much so that my only you know relevant the only reason I get asked on podcasts is because I have hooks. I get it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be able to leverage that in a way that I have something useful to say that's not kind of like. You know, oh, this was horrible. Here's some medical information. Grace be to God. Bullshit. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I think I have asked you pretty much everything I wanted to ask. Oh, well, I was quite intrigued by one thing you said, which is that you you are drawn to DJing because you like the solitude of DJing. <laughs> yeah. Um, can you say more about that? Yes. Um, so. You know, in the veritable ocean that is, you know, club land, for, mm. for lack of a better name, uh, as I think I mentioned before, it's quite socially draining. And when you're DJing, uh, it's actually the only time of night that you get just to yourself because it's just you and the music mm. um, and you can just get completely sucked into that and you don't have to be drained socially by people around you. And... Uh, you know, you, there's still an interactivity between you and the crowd, but it's um, it's very much at an arm's length. You know what I mean? Yes. So you, you have to read the room, but you don't have to talk to people. And right. so if I'm spending, you know, eight hours in a nightclub or at a festival or something like that, like I'm constantly in conversations with large groups of people and trying to be on. And, and uh, then once you get up there and you start playing music, that's it. It's just you and you can just enjoy the music that you're playing and there's a sense of solitude in that that I quite like. Yeah. Mm. I wrote a short story once about DJs being replaced by AI. Yeah. So I, I will send that to Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yeah, think. that'd be but, great. Um, I actually think that's an interesting um, concept. I don't think it'll work for the same reason I don't think... Well, sorry, I think it'll work in many contexts, but in in others, it will fail. Um, I was having this conversation with a friend about AI art, and he was like, oh, you know, you know AI is definitely going to replace all artists. And I don't think that's true, not because they, they can't create things that are mm. as beautiful, mm. if not more beautiful than artists do, but I think people buy art for stories. Mm. I think that something to do with like if I painted you a picture there's more meaning than the, than what is on the page right and and that I would me- be especially impressed if you painted it <laughs> yeah, do you want me to paint a picture I'd love to paint you a picture yeah alright I'll do that um, it won't be very good <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think for the same reason um, I, I sit in this kind of middle camp where I think DJs think that they're way more important than they are but so does AI mm. so if you could I think there's a middle ground there where people want to go to a place where there's a DJ playing because they think that in some way that contributes to a sense of story Mm. or to something that they're hearing to be more authentic or human driven. But at the same time, having the, what the DJ plays is probably only 10% of the value they get from being in the environment. Right. So I think there's, it exists along a spectrum Mm. uh, and Everybody's wrong about where it is. 
I think it's, you know, people do value um, human interaction and they value kind of the fact that a human did this thing. Mm. As long as there's not too much hanging on it. This is why I think, you know, it seems like surgery is one going to be replaced by AI quite mm. soon. Um, yeah, so, so in the arts and in things that are, yeah, absolutely, there's a huge distinction to be yeah, made there. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, you know, it, it matters that the surgery is done right. It doesn't matter who does it. Yeah. So um, AI can definitely take over there and in things like flying planes and stuff. Yeah. Sam Harris speculates that at some point it will become illegal to have an ape-driven car because it's too dangerous. You will have to, your car yeah. will legally have to be self-driving. I, I agree with him, not just on that, but on many points. <laughs> yeah, me uh, too. But also, yeah, I think that, I mean... Uh, I don't see a problem with all cars being, you know, driverless. I think you would see far fewer deaths on the road. Like, quite clearly, human error is the cause of everything on the road. So yeah. it's like, why not just eliminate that thing? But we'd still enjoy watching Formula One. Well, people who oh, yeah, that's it. a good point. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, the element of sport or competition could fall into that mm, artistic mm, category, I guess. Yeah, because yeah. we like to see what humans can do yep. unaided. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there anything that you wish I had asked you that I haven't or would have liked to talk about that I haven't given you a chance to? Oh, um, no, not necessarily. Um, I'm always happy just talking about whatever someone wants to talk about. <laughs> I never want to do. What I do like in conversations is when they just completely go off the rails, and mm. which I think we've mm. done several times. That's yes. yeah. I do feel that you, within the kind of um, mis the um, the misfortune that happened to you at nineteen, within that you had a lot of resources for dealing with it that many other people wouldn't have had. And I suspect some of those were hereditary, um, were genetic, not necessarily hereditary. Like um, you have a lot of intellectual curiosity. Um, you have a very uh, forceful personality. You're also good with people, sociable. Um, and I think that, and plus you're in Australia, that also makes it help. That Huge also help. helps. Yeah. So it's kind of, Within the within one of the worst things one could imagine happening, um, you had kind of the best tools to deal with it. Absolutely, um, yeah. And also, you know, um, not limited to um, you know the support that I had, friends and family, mm -hmm. and I came across uh, people that I was in hospital with that didn't have that support network around them. So even though, you know, as you say, I was fortunate to have had this in a country that can support and get me th and the medical. Um, system that was just absolutely brilliant if you think about it um, even if you don't think about it um, <laughs> but but also you know I had such a wonderful support network of friends and family that were around me all the time mm. and so many people don't have that even if they're in uh, an amazing you know medical system like Australia and those things are super important I, I'd been lamenting on that actually recently when I because I've I think I mentioned to you I've written my book that's coming out this yes, September. Yeah. Yes. And, Once um, your book is out, then yeah. we should do another interview. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Hopefully in the UK, maybe I'll come over. Oh, yeah. Um, that'd be fun. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I was, I was thinking a lot about it when I was writing a passage about that, and I thought that uh, something struck me about the support network, and there's there's a sort of – there's a hidden advantage to it that most people just think, you know, everyone, you've got family and friends around to talk to and – and support you through things and be there to help 
with physical mm. tasks and stuff and all of that is is hugely helpful and I'm not discounting that at all. But I think one of the most important things is the fact that it sort of imbues you with a sense of responsibility. Mm. So when you have all these people around you supporting you and, and rooting for you, um, you can't fail. Right. You know, mm. you, you have to pick yourself up because if they're there supporting you, you have to be doing your best to actually improve and get better. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's like it kind of guilts you into overcoming <laughs> yeah, shit. Yeah. And that's not what they intend to do by doing that, but it's it's a second mm-hmm. order effect. And I think it's probably, you know, far more uh, useful than we perhaps give it credit for. It's really interesting because I'm, I was also thinking that, you know, the reason why people feel, prob- probably one of the reasons why people feel so comfortable around you, because uh, you do seem to be very good at making people feel comfortable socially. Um, and I noted that when we met in person. Um, is because uh, people don't pity you. Mm. Um, and that's not that pitying people is a bad thing or there aren't people whose lives are genuinely pitiable. No, but it's fucking exhausting, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but it's it's tiring and it doesn't feel good, you know, yeah. to be around. So people will minimize their exposure to that. Mm. Um, and um, it's not that I feel, oh, this very brave guy is fighting so hard against this terrible thing it's like yeah. you actually have quite a nice life look seems you seem fine to me I, in I'm that sense the happiest i've ever been in my yeah. entire life i have it's, a wonderful life i'm my own boss mm, you know yeah. i have a beautiful home life i have absolutely nothing to complain about whatsoever i mean i complain all the time let's just get this <laughs> let's get things straight okay i'm not sure whether i mentioned this to you the other night but i'm i'm like a chronic complainer but I do only complain about very trivial things. So, and I, I feel like that's just a compulsion that I've always had. Mm. Um, and <laughs> but it's fine. Like I'm, yeah, I'm okay with that. Is the worst. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I like. Yeah, I'm chronically cynical, but it's always um, to do with very trivial things. And so I, I let myself have that one. It's not mm. something that I necessarily need to change about myself. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for doing this. It was an honor to be invited on. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash two for tea. Have a wonderful week. <laughs>